I think this idea of to able to to laugh in the face of oppression, to have that be your way of rebelling, to have humour be part of your activism, that's really powerful. When someone's trying to push you down, to be able to be like, not just like fuck you, but fuck you with a smile on your face, like that hurts more, I think. Like it's like I'm not going to let you deny my humanity and my humanity is like living, laughing and loving. And welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Nakia Louie. Nakia is a writer for theatre and TV and proud Gamilaroi and Torres Strait Island woman. In a relatively short but stupidly decorated career as a writer and playwright, Nakia has co-written and starred in ABC's Black Comedy, created and starred in the comedy series Kiki and Kitty for the ABC, co-hosted the BuzzFeed podcast series Pretty for an Aboriginal, was the recipient of the Patrick White Playwrights Fellow for 2018, released her debut novel Black is the New White in 2019, and this year released her audible original podcast with Miranda Tapsell called Debutante. And honestly, that is all just the tip of the iceberg. I didn't include half of her achievements right there. In this chat, we touched on everything from growing up around community, how she found herself studying a law degree, and the impact Grandma Joan had on her life and career. Nakia was warm and funny and so unsurprisingly articulate and was one of our favourite conversations to date. So here's Nakia. Nakia, Louis, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to have a yarn. You look delightful. You logged onto this chat and you've been sick lately, like you've had ear infections, you had a crazy yeah. allergic reaction yesterday, you were in hospital. I expected someone to log on in their pyjamas with like maybe a face mask on. You have logged on <laughs> looking incredible. What's like, is this just, do you do this to lift your own mood? Do you dress up to kind of make yourself feel better? Yeah, I'm a big believer in like fake it till you make it. So this is a bit like I am going to look really, really, I'm going to trick myself into thinking I am like, also this is exciting for me. Now I feel really embarrassed dressing up, but I haven't worn this shirt in like years. So, well, a year. But You're yeah. rocking it. Yeah. So I, was like, I love oh, it. An event. But thank you. You both look very well as well. <laughs> How are you doing? It's a weird time in the world. How are you coping with it all? Uh, look, it's the same as everybody else, but I feel pretty lucky. You know, I have a roof over my head and I have my health. So, you know, just take it as it comes. You know, I think people are doing it a lot harder than myself. But otherwise, I, I don't know, like horrible collapsing mess. You know, anxiety at night, like, <laughs> looking in the mirror. Just gave that humble earnest, like, 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 you know, Miss Australia. Yeah, people are doing it harder than me. But in reality, I'm like, I don't know. Like, the world's, like, on fire. <laughs> people are dying. Like, I don't know if I can survive colonisation again. Like, the end of it's the It's been a big so. year. I think that wraps yeah, it all in. <laughs> yeah. What are you reading, watching, or listening to that kind of helps you stay sane at the moment or helps you pass the time? Yeah, so watch a lot of reality TV, a lot of just kind of brain-numbing stuff below deck, Real Housewives of Miami I just started watching. I kind of hate watched Emily in Paris 
over a weekend. Did you watch? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look, yeah. you've you've met two girls who disagree a lot on Emily in Paris. I oh. am a slightly ashamed mega fan. Zara is not a mega fan. I actually, we spoke about this on Monday's episode. I feel insulted by people who don't like it, so it's a bit of a touchy topic right now. <laughs> <laughs> you must feel, like, super insulted. It's, like, the most, like, controversial <laughs> like show I for feel very basic like I don't think I realized how much of a basic bitch I am I've always known that I'm a basic bitch but seeing everyone talk about how lowbrow Emily in Paris is has made me realize that I am truly the basic like the most basic of all the bitches I don't believe that <laughs> it was entertaining but it was a bit you know kind of a bit normy you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. it felt like it was yeah. kind of 15 years too late. Yeah. I think I'm so depressed and anxious and I have been in Melbourne lockdown before the announcements yesterday that I needed anything sugary to lift me out of my yeah. like dark, dark hole that you spoke about earlier, Nakia. So yeah, I think if I was in a normal state of mind, I'd be watching everything with more of a critical eye. But I'm in the state where I'm like, just give me sugar. Just inject it into my veins. I just need sugary stuff. Yeah, anything that just numbs me out, put it on. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it was good. The outfits were pretty amazing. The outfits were good. What about podcasting? Are you into podcasts? Like obviously you have dabbled yourself and you do incredible podcasting yourself, but what about consuming podcasts? Do you like a true crime junkie or what are you into? Your podcast, of course. No, but um <laughs> that's the standard. But uh I you reply all like a lot of news. Yeah, reply all this American life. 7am, a lot of shorts media stuff. That Saturday quiz podcast I've been listening along to as if they were my friends and like joining in and then but still kind of cheating in the podcast even though it's just me listening to it <laughs> by myself. Like I'm like, oh, I yeah, know the yeah, answer I got to this. That one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, I had that, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, I usually like kind of investigative journalism but not too much, not really on the true crime train unfortunately. No, that's so fair. You found two people that aren't on the true crime train either. So, you know, safe space. One question we do ask everyone at the start is what were you like as a kid? I just went away the week before last week to go look at wedding venues with my sister and her partner and my family. And um, so I was around a lot of my nieces and nephews. And one of my nieces is just like, I don't know, like she's five and she's so full on. And I was like, this kid is like intense, like she's a lot. And my mum's like, that's exactly what you were like. Um, <laughs> so I was, yeah, I was pretty intense. I, you know, I used to climb the tree and yell, I'm a little Cory girl, I'm a little black girl to no one. I was pretty naughty. I once put like a whole tub of Vaseline in my mum's hair. But I was, if anything, what? an enthusiastic child. Yeah, yeah. She said it ruined her hair to this day. <laughs> Yeah. While she was sleeping or like yeah. how did you do that? I guess with stealth. But yeah, I was pretty curious and loud as a child. It might seem like we're jumping forward a little bit, but your best friend Miranda Tapsell recently said, Nakia makes me feel bolder, more comfortable in my own skin. She isn't scared to speak up and say what she feels is right. I'm inspired by that. That boldness and that feeling comfortable in your skin, was that something that was there when you were a child or is that something that you grew into? Hmm. I was definitely there as a child, but I think that has a lot to do with my upbringing. My parents and my grandparents, because I was really close to them, 
were really, really proactive in making sure that I guess I was very confident in myself. They equipped me with a lot of critical thinking skills. So I was always, I guess, taught to ask why. And that asking questions wasn't a bad thing, which I know sounds really simple, but that's something that I think you know, can be easily taken for granted that not everybody feels comfortable coming from a place of why. And I don't mean that in like a self-help way, but I think being able to ask yourself why you think something and then be able to ask the same of authority is, is really integral to, well, I think like a fair society, but yeah, they, they taught me very much to like, they taught me to protest. I, I wondered how hard it was to discipline me because I would always ask why, But I remember in primary school, I didn't want to sing the national anthem and I had like thought about the lyrics and I'd had this conversation with my parents about it and I decided that I wasn't going to stand for it. And then I remember sitting there with one of my best friends in primary school and when everybody stood up for the national anthem, I was like, I'm not standing, I'm not doing it. And then my friend was like, why aren't you standing for the anthem? And then I explained why I didn't stand. And then before I knew it, like I'd led like this little revolution of school students who we, we all decided How we were going to stand for the anthem. I think I would have been like around like year three. That's so how, however old you are in year three. I mean, it's so funny because I feel a bit stalkery in a sense that before we do these interviews, I feel like we've gone back and listened to almost every interview you've ever done. And I think what seems to be a really consistent thread through hearing you speak is how influential your parents have been on who you are. You have a mum and a stepdad and a dad. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So my mum and my biological father separated when I was really, really young due to domestic abuse issues. And then it was just me and my mum there for a bit. And we were kind of a little, like I guess, like we were homeless at the time. We didn't really have anywhere to go. We didn't have much money. So we were staying at people's homes and um, she was working as a community worker at that point, I think. I'm not sure. I can't remember if she was nursing or not. And then I had that close relationship with my grandparents and then she met my dad who raised me, I think, when I was like around two or so. So, yeah, I grew up with pretty um I guess the reason I talk about this is they were always super honest in talking to me about this you know what I mean like what is a parent like what is a dad you know he may not be your biological father but what does a dad do what does a what it does a parent do and does this person do this for you so they were always super proactive with even you know this idea of parent and family we discussed we sound so boring and like super analytical but yeah. You don't. It sounds beautiful. And I love that they kind of instilled that curiosity within you. Can you talk to us about your dad, like your stepdad, but you yeah. refer to him as your father, of course. Talk to us about him. What has he taught you and what is your relationship with him like? Yeah. So we're really, really close. He has this horrible joke, which I'll talk about. It's, I'll say it's quite sexist and it's disgusting, but whatever, he shouldn't say it. He quite often will be like, yeah, I think I had a one night stand with a woman who looked like you to my mum around the time I was born. And I was like, that's disgusting. That is so rude. Um, but um, he is, I say I'm his favourite, but I think all my siblings say that. He's an academic and he's 
I guess I often joke in my family, we talk about race in the same way some families talk about sport. So his background in academia is in kind of racial theory and cultural relativism. That's as, as, as much as I know, it's too smart for me. But he, he taught me, I guess, one of the biggest lessons in my life, which is that you create love for people. You know, I, I guess for me, one of my personal, I don't really, haven't really talked about this before, but, you know, this idea of having a family member who loves you because you're their blood. And for us, you know, I'm not his blood technically, but I know he loves me. And I think it's that decision, like you choose to love someone and your actions are so much more important than, I guess, the expectation of values. And so for us, our relationship, you know, as a kid, we got on very well and I, you know, had a very instant connection with him. I think as like, you know, with a lot of parents, especially non-biological parents, the teenage years got a bit, you know, rough. And then after, I guess, my, my later teens, we, we grew quite close again, especially learning about his story, you know, and, and then I guess reflecting on it now and the fact that, you know, he raised me and put so much into me and made that decision to love me and, and be a parent to me. I mean, I'll be forever grateful for that. I mean, the relationship yeah. sounds so beautiful as it does with your mum too. And both your parents started the Buddha Carbon Aboriginal Corporation in Western Sydney, which is a community outreach group. What was your childhood yeah. like growing up with communities so close? Oh, look, in a way, it was amazing. I grew up in a really tight-knit Aboriginal community, which was due partly due to Buddha Carbon. But um, the Mount Druitt community in of itself is a resettlement area. So in around the 1970s, Aboriginal people were moved to Mount Jewett, St. Mary's, Dunheaded, on the promise that there would be kind of a lot of work. And so that's when my grandparents and family were moved there. And then eventually what happened is the work kind of never came and a lot of the industries were exported overseas, which created a lot of slow socioeconomic conditions for the Aboriginal people in that community, but not just Aboriginal people. I mean, that goes it's goes across a lot of marginalised groups. So it was a kind of like a forgotten about suburb in a way. But within that, there's this kind of, you know, close-knit Aboriginal community where I had a lot of my biological relatives, but also like a lot of relatives who were kind of your, your aunties and your uncles just because they're your community, like cultural ways. So in that way, it was amazing also kind of bad isn't that everybody knew your business I think my nan told everybody when I was like tell everybody I was a virgin um so (laughs) that was everybody knew your business but in a lot of ways I joke that it was kind of like slave labor it's that you know my parents organization was so I guess underfunded in so many ways that we were always always volunteering so I grew up like at every event making cups of tea for the elders and you know, having to get there in the morning and then like tidy up at night. But it was in a way, it t- like it taught me to give back, you know. Totally. You, you get what you put in. In an interview that you did a few years ago, I think it was, gosh, I think it was from 2015, which feels so long ago now, five years ago, you told this story of how your dad was arrested when you were younger and put in jail for three days because he was driving a new car and the police mm. didn't believe that it was his. And I wanted to ask you about this story because I wanted to ask you about the impact of like nonsensical police brutality and the impact that it has on Indigenous families. Yeah, I think as, you know, I think I'm really fair-skinned. I wouldn't say I'm white presenting because like no white person has ever thought I was white ever. But people, you know, they kind of go, oh, she doesn't look Aboriginal or, 
one of my favorite comments was someone once I think wrote in a tweet or on Facebook this was probably around 2015 they're like why does that fat ab- like that fat Asian girl care so much about Aboriginal issues which still kind of makes me laugh though in a way but they were genuinely like they were so confused but the reason I bring that up is I think we have this idea of what an Aboriginal experience is and that we think that police brutality or over-policing or, you know, the violence of, I guess, racial enforcement affects a certain type of person, especially when we think of that effect on Aboriginal people. And so you see someone like me, I'm here like wearing bling, I talk a certain way, I, I guess, and educated, which unfortunately is a, you know, people kind of view that as, I guess, the more privileged you are, the less Aboriginal you are, like that kind of racial expectation. I guess people don't see, they, they see that, they might see, you know, like my family, who I guess were fairly white collar working class and go, well, police brutality doesn't affect people like them. And it was a huge part of growing up, you know, like some of my immediate siblings spent for most of my childhood were in jail. I often joke that I'd gone to like nearly every prison in New South Wales before the time I was 10. So that was very part of my lived experience. But with my dad and and with that, I think the idea that something bad can happen to any one of your families so immediately. And I think that's also maybe a little bit of trauma from the stolen generation that all of a sudden your life can be turned upside down because of authority is something that you grow up with and just personally that's caused a lot of PTSD and anxiety and my own mental health but I think there's a real distrust towards authority and the fact that you can feel like you're comfortable in the world and then all of a sudden it can be torn away is like that's something I still deal with every day that idea that suddenly everything that can collapse, like that that thought still keeps me up at night. And I think that is because, you know, of intergenerational trauma, but also kind of seeing how quickly bad things can happen in a way that's really unfair. I used to say to my parents when I was learning about, you know, incidences like that, I remember, you know, so often we would go to restaurants and especially, you know, growing up and it was a different time. It was, you know, like the 90s, but that you know, going to restaurants and people not paying any attention to my dad until my mum asked to speak to someone because they would serve people instead of my dad because my dad has dark skin. You know, even like things like I remember we were at, this is a fairly recent thing, but I'm buying a baguette, (laughs) a baguette, buying a baguette and um, the lady at the bakery was going, are these your daughters to me and my sister? And um my dad goes, yeah, and she's like, you're, well, you're lucky you don't have your father's nose. So the idea of like that you would even think that it's okay to say that. And um, even on the day of my wedding day, my and we were staying over at Bondi and um, my mum and dad went to go get, you know, like orange juice for mimosas and like talcum powder, you know, all those things that you need. And um, they're waiting in line <laughs> and this guy, I don't know, just stuff. And um. This, this guy told my dad to go back to where you come from, waiting in line. And I think within my family, those kind of incidences have, have increased in the last year or so. But I think, you know, looking at police brutality and stuff like that, oh, you're going back to that, like those things. As a kid, I would ask my parents about it and um, we would talk about it and I would go, that's not fair. 
And then my dad would always say, it's as fair as a black fella's bum. And I'd sit there and I'd be like, huh? But a black fella's bum isn't fair. And that was, you were taught that like things aren't, things aren't always fair. Things aren't always right Mm -hmm. because those who have power make those decisions. Coming up after the break, finding joy in resistance. But first a word from today's sponsor. I imagine with all that in mind, growing up as a teenager in Australia was often really difficult and really fucking hard. You were incredible, exceptional at school. You actually got a scholarship to Pearson College in Canada. Was, I mean, I don't want to use the word escape to Canada, but was it kind of freeing getting away from some of the stuff in Australia at that really seminal age? Yeah, I I had a pretty, um, towards the end of high school, I mean, I was a pretty big girl. And so, you know, like I was kind of a large, I was like the, I think I was the only Aboriginal kid in my year and I was really big. So I'd hear kind of Abo jokes most days, not directed at me, but around me. And then when you pull up your classmates and be like, hey, that's not cool. They'd be like, oh, but you're different. You know, so it was like probably about four years of of that. And that's a pretty common experience, unfortunately, for a lot of Aboriginal people and I was talking to some of my nieces and nephew who um, are in high school about whether that's something they still experience and yeah they still hear Abo jokes slightly I think things have changed but when you hear about I guess how common that experience is you feel less alone as a person but also it sucks to hear that that's, it was so common and so things like I'd hear that I used to get bullied a little bit by the kids at the school next to us so they used to like throw their fruit they run on fruit from this because you know school bag, like fruit would sit in the bottom of school bags mm. and like ferment. <laughs> so they throw that up like off the bus at me. And so that wasn't fun. So I think going to Canada was, you know, and I, I loved theatre. I did ice skating. So, I mean, I didn't make it easier for myself, to be honest with you. Um, ice skating. Yeah. So you're already getting teased for being fat. It's like, what are you going to do to make that any better? Go wear lycra and like twirl and jump around. But um, yeah, and I did, again, I did a lot of like community theatre. So it wasn't like I, I don't know, I, I was always a bit of a kite bold. So I, I got this scholarship. I didn't even think about it, to be honest with you. We'd been to Canada the summer before for my parents' work. And I was like, Canada's cool. I'll apply to go to Canada. And I got this scholarship. I get to the school after like a full nearly 24 hours of travel. And I realized when as soon as I got to the school, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is for me. So I caught up my parents and I was like, hey, can I, I think I'm going to come home now. But the issue was my parents had thrown me like a big going away party at Wayland Town Hall. And ABC had done this kind of like mini docker on me and my sister because she was she was a really good figure skater at the time. Her career was linked to that <laughs> of mine. And so my mom was just like, you can't come home. Like it's too embarrassing. We threw you this big party. Like you at least need to stay <laughs> like a month. And so I would Tolster reverse charge call all of my relatives. And then my mom ended up having to call all of my relatives and say, look, look, don't answer any of her calls. She has to stay in Canada. So for about the first month, I was known as the crying Aboriginal girl at Canada because I didn't talk to anyone. They just knew that it was like I was the first Aboriginal student from Australia to ever go to a United World College that all I did was cry. So I don't know if I was escaping at that point. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> I was like, I want to come back. 
it was kind of great in a way. I got to, I guess, be in a community where being Aboriginal was so different to what being Aboriginal was at my high school and the community I grew up in. And I also had to like find my own voice in the world, you know, which as much as, you know, as close as I am with my parents and my family, they can't give that to me. And I think they kind of realized that and that's why they made everyone stop answering my calls for a good solid month. So you did stick it out in Canada and then you came home and you studied law. Tell us about that. As one of the country's best and most gifted creatives, what drove you to study law? And this is no disrespect to lawyers. My partner is out there in the next room doing law stuff. But, you know, it can be very dry to study. Yeah, well, it was two reasons. I think it's a classic class story. You know, like your parents always want you to, like my parents didn't get their degrees until they were in their like 30s, I think. Well, when they had me. So they got their educations later in life. So I think it's that classic story of like, we're going to have like a lawyer and a doctor or an engineer or it was that type of thing. And so they were like, well, Nakia is very dramatic. She can be the lawyer. And I think that's a lot of, I think a lot of like lawyers end up doing law purely because they're like, well, you're good at arguing and you're good at throwing tantrums or all of that stuff. So my parents were like, go do law. So there was that. I mean, I had no idea what I wanted to do after high school. When I think about it, I still like kids now. I'm like, whoa. It took me like doing three years of a degree to realize I wanted no part in it. So yeah, and I auditioned for NIDA. And I didn't get in. So I was like, I guess I'm going to law school. And that's how that happened. And i got to be honest here. I like, I had my schedule, had my books, but I had no idea what I was doing. Like I had no idea. Like I, like, I just don't even, I just, I don't even know how I got assignments in. I had no idea what was going on for three years. And it made me feel like, I guess on a sadder level, like, like kind of lost and aimless and depressed. And, you know, then I was doing all of the fun stuff that, you know, kind of aren't useful to your studies. So like partying and meeting guys on the internet and stuff like that. (laughs) And yeah, I just couldn't picture myself being a lawyer. And I remember just sitting there in class and, and just kind of, you know, in admin or something like that and having no idea what the F was going on. And then just not being able to picture what the future was. I didn't know what working in a law firm was. So I don't, I just ended up like, (laughs) you know, the same way, I guess most people with a lot of angst, and like to write it's up in a career it's my parents pushed me into it I had no idea what else to do <laughs> how did you figure it out though like it's one thing to be like okay I can't picture myself being a lawyer did you picture anything that was like okay but I can picture myself being a writer or creating things like what was the image in your head and how did you actually make it happen because I think a lot of people who yeah. are interested in creative industries go okay that's a cool idea but how do I bring it to fruition Yeah, it's my career was based on a whole heap of like kind of serendipity and tokenism in a lot of ways. But my nan had, I I talk about this a lot, it was really pivotal in my life. I was really, really close to my grandmother. Her name was Joan and I lived in a housing commission house in St. Mary's. And basically what happened was termites started eating away at the fibro, her house was fibro at her house. And they basically ate the house away around her. And so for probably in my third year of law, we were calling them, my mum and I, 
every single day, housing commission this is, and being like, you need to come fix the floor, you need to come fix the floor. She's, you know, an older lady. And by older, I mean, like, she was older, but she could still, like, live independently, drive, all of that stuff. Like, the old girl got around. And we're like, if she falls through the floor, mum would say to her, to the people on the phone, she'll fall through the floor and die. And then my nan would be listening and she'd be like aghast, like, Jennifer, it's a bit dramatic. But then what ended up is she did fall through the floor and she got severely, severely injured. So I took a year off uni to go care for her. Within about a year, she was dead. And so I I couldn't, I guess I'd gone into law because I'd grown up, you know, my parents are social workers, well, you know, community workers Social activism is such a big part of, you know, my upbringing, my family's history. I thought, I guess, in a way, I joke about, you know, I was just kind of thrown into law. But I think, you know, going into law, going from a school like Pearson, you know, my parents being activists, I thought that if I could become a lawyer, that was how I was going to change the world and make things better. And then what really frustrated me was this idea of I couldn't even help my mum save my nan. And I felt so powerless and I remember I would be so mad and I would think about all the people. It's actually quite psycho. I I knew the people's names. Actually, I shouldn't be admitting to this. It's probably a crime. So I knew the people's names at Housing Commission who were dealing with my nan's cases and I would be like, I want to murder them. I want to murder them because so they can feel like they they wouldn't send anyone to fix her floor Mm. and and now she's dead and it was like I miss her every day. And it just felt so unfair because the solution was so simple and then they, they this bureaucracy couldn't say yes. And so I was like, I'm going to figure out how to murder, you know, John Doe and I'm going to figure out ways as to how, like, to not get caught. It was really hard because I didn't have my licence. So I was like, how do you be a murderer without your licence? How do you go on public transport without, you know, getting caught with a kill? I guess maybe I am into true crime. But, yeah, so I, I would do all that and then I couldn't help but think like, okay, it's not their fault. And I would go, whose fault is it? And I'd go back and back and back. And it was like, well, when Captain Cook landed, right? It was colonization. And that problem was just so, how do you find any kind of sense of justice or fairness in that? And I mean, I still kind of struggle with that, but that's, I think for me, I did know how to, I guess, engage with any of those thoughts in a way that maybe the legal system gave me the tools for. And that's kind of how I started writing as a way to just kind of make sense of all of that, which still, like, I don't think I said it with much clarity, but I'm still trying to figure out. And that, that was why I started writing. I wanted to ask about your grandmother, Joan, because you did recently launch a new publishing imprint with Alan and Unwin called Joan, of course, named after your beloved grandmother. And I listened to an interview that you did, I think it was last month with Mark Fennell, and you spoke about her death. And what I found so hard to listen to was this sense that you felt so much guilt about her death. When you say that you felt so much guilt, what did you mean? Just what I was talking about before, that I couldn't do anything. Because of the way her her bones all broke, she was in a lot of pain. And so she couldn't really move. And I'm not a very religious person. I wouldn't say I'm a religious at all. But I I would hear her crying at night and I would lay there in the room next to her and just like pray to like have her pain come into my body so she would just have a moment of relief. And I think, I I guess I just felt like I should have been able to do something 
And I know it's nonsensical because it's like, how could you do something about that? But when you love someone so much, you you do want to be able to make everything right for them. But I think to contextualize it, like she was a character, hey, she, you know, she said what, like one of her, she had two phrases, what can you do if you can't laugh? And then if you're going to poke it, fuck it. And so she was always like laughing and had so much joy and would kind of know everybody in the neighborhood, just was really fun. I think I talk about a lot of this stuff a lot because, you know, she was such an amazing person. But she like little things, like she loved the invention of condoms. Like she thought they were amazing. The idea for her that you could have <laughs> sex and not get pregnant was <laughs> she was just like condoms. Have you heard about condoms? Like she thought they were like the best. So I think that for me, not being able to stop the pain and not being able to, I guess, help prevent her death, it still gives me a lot of guilt. But I think in a way, I guess I wouldn't be able to do anything that I do without her because it was when she passed away and I, you know, I was trying to figure out how to deal with all of my emotions and my anger and, you know, how confused I was and that, you know, I was, I thought I was doing law to change the world. And then I kind of was like, I just don't think I can do anything with this. And like, what if the world can never be fair? Like, what if, what if there can never be any justice for her? How do I still live in a way that pays tribute to the upbringing and life that she gave me? And I realized, and I only had this realization a couple of years ago, and I'm still figuring it out, but I was thinking about hope because I would often describe that time of my life as quite hopeless. And then, you know, I always was like, I'm trying to find hope. But then I realized that I don't know if I'll be able to find hope. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to fix anything that happened to her. A lot of bad things do happen and life isn't fair. And that can make you kind of go, well, how do you have hope or faith? But then I realized maybe I was looking at that completely wrong and my nan didn't grow up with it. Like she grew up in a society that really had no worth for her and she died in a way that was completely dehumanizing with no dignity because she was poor and Aboriginal. You know, they just wouldn't fix her house. But she still managed to give me an amazing life. You know, I grew up in a community where a lot of people live under the poverty line. They still managed to, you know, give me a community where I can reach for the stars that was filled with like love and hope. And so I think I realized it's that you don't have hope, you create it. And that's when I think things kind of started changing in my life. God, that sounds really self-helpy, but. No, I think that's beautiful. Of the time in the year after your grandmother passed, you did write your first draft for your first ever play. And I want to read you two different quotes that I found from you because I think they're on the same thread and I just really love them and like you to speak to them. One quote you said about that time was to make something good out of something bad is rebellion. Another beautiful quote I recently found of yours was find joy in your resistance, laugh in the face of your oppressor, love despite their hate and let your loving anger destroy their world. What did you mean by that? The last one sounds like the Aboriginal, like eat, pray, love. Like I'd have that in like a like a like a, like a really nice. Spot. What did you Instagram like, bio? Yeah, what like do you call an Aboriginal Karen? I was joking with that with my sister the other day. We're like Sharon, but then we realised we had an Auntie Sharon. It was a bit of a Karen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So going back to the the first phase, I love this idea of like just laughing in the face of your oppressor. 
the day that my nan died, I was the last person with her and I polished her nails and I brushed her hair and I put it in little plaits and, you know, rubbed cream on her arms. And she told me that day what she said to me, she goes, smile, key smile, because what can you do if you can't laugh? And then I spent maybe another two hours or so with her and then I left and then that night she died. When I, when I talk to an Aboriginal person, I think there's a lot of power in the specificity of experience. So I think a lot of people can relate to some of these these themes because a lot of it just goes back to what is it to be on the fringes of power? What is it to experience marginalisation and be vulnerable because of, you know, your identity? I, I, I think as an Aboriginal person, so often your identity is so centred around trauma. I think a lot of representations of Aboriginal people are performances of trauma you know like the tragic aboriginal figure that you see so often and I talk really specifically about this to you know screen representations and theater and I think there's something and and I think in our activism you know so often some of the times that we're only really visible like as an aboriginal community are when really tragic things have happened to us and we've had to galvanise as a community and with our allies to try and change things so it's always this representation of extremes I think Steve McQueen was saying, I mean, I just saw a quote about like from this, I I haven't read the article yet, but about, we always talk about Aboriginal excellence and he was saying we need just like, he was talking, he's a a black English film director, but he was talking about how we need to see like more bad black films. I'm always like, I think we need to see like more like (laughs) Aboriginal mediocrity. Um, But I guess it's this idea of, we have these extremes of how we see Aboriginality at oftentimes. So I think this idea of to able to to laugh in the face of oppression, to have that be your way of rebelling, to have humour be part of your activism and articulating your identity when so often so much of your identity is only visible through through trauma. Like for me, that's that's really powerful. But also like at a really base level, and I'm super like I'm just gonna swear, but I think to be able to, like when someone's trying to push you down, to be able to be like, not just like fuck you, but fuck you with a smile on your face, like that hurts more, I think. Like it's like I'm not going to let you deny my humanity and my humanity is like living, laughing and loving, (laughs) Like, (laughs) like the same as a lot of people's. What do you love about what you do now? Like what do you love about the work that you do? Because you produce so much work and so much beautiful work. What is it that you love the most about it? Yeah, so, I mean, I love that I get to talk to people for a living. So much of writing, whether that be like for theatre or for screen, it's just talking to people, podcasting. Yeah, basically like all the hats that I wear, a lot of that is just kind of your job is to listen. And, I mean, I am a big fan of that. When I was in law, one of my favourite things that I got to do was client interviews and I would always get in trouble when I was doing my clerkship and stuff at the legal centre I was working for, I'd get in trouble because I would spend too much time doing client interviews. (laughs) I like talking to people. I think that's such a blessing. And for that to be like, that's my job, like I get to do that is pretty amazing. With my, I did a podcast last year that came out this year for Audible called Debutante, where I got to like go around the world talking to debutantes and 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 got to have these like big full-on chats with my own parents and one of my aunties who like you know um cultural ways auntie Annie Dot who's in her 80s I think who made her debut as a debutante in her 70s and I got to learn about her life growing up on a reserve called Hollywood in like the 1950s to get to do that as my job was amazing 
reading and writing, consuming and getting to laugh. Yeah, getting to write comedies, like writing stupid jokes and then working with other writers to to write more stupid jokes. And, you know, with my job, <laughs> I get to work with a lot of Aboriginal writers, getting to write with other people of colour and women and Aboriginal writers and, and getting to have that solidarity and feel like you're actually creating change, like you are opening mm. those doors, that you are leaving a legacy behind. That's my favourite thing. But that, yeah, mm. like who, who, like what other jobs do you get to like kind of dictate your own hours most of the time? And um, <laughs> like listen to podcasts in the morning and then go read a book and then interview people. To me, that's like pretty. The dream. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to sound morbid. We ask everyone this question though. What do you want your legacy to be? I guess, I mean, I'd love to be rich and then like become a philanthropist <laughs> and start up like a scholarship fund. I'd love to start a scholarship fund for like people who just don't want to like, they don't want to do anything that has any value except for them. Like, does that make sense? Like, <laughs> yeah. I want, like, it's like, yeah, I was talking I was talking about this with my mum because, you know, a lot of scholarships for, like, young Aboriginal people are, like, in sports or, like, academia or but what if you just want to, like, I know it's maybe not the time for, like, international travel, but what if you just, like, you want to go to Europe for a year and, like, fuck around and, like, get drunk and <laughs> sleep with a bunch fun. of people? Yeah, like, but, you know, there's a lot of kids in my community who don't have those types of resources. Or, like, what if you want to try your hand at becoming an influencer? Like, I don't know. Like, it's just a scholarship fund for mediocre, like, mediocre <laughs> things. I think that would be cool. But unfortunately, I'm not rich. I don't think I'm going to become rich. Yeah, so I think the likelihood of that dream ever happening is pretty slim. I I would like to create space for, I don't know, like I, I think of like some of the stupidest stuff I've done on telly. I think I did a whole comedy sketch once, which was pretty controversial within my own community where I am trying to figure out an appropriate sexual position with my cis white male partner. There were like heaps of people in my family who loved it. And then like there were like some people in my family who were just like, no, no, no. And then I think of ice skating and kicking and kitty and getting to do like my, what I wanted to do my entire life. It's just like grand ice skating, like figure skating sequence where I'm able to do all the tricks to pretending to do a shit on screen on get cracking but um I guess what I'm trying to say is I didn't grow up with any of those representations to really feel like I belonged I kind of grew up you know reading Dolly wishing I could audition for the what is it like or girlfriend girlfriend of the year but not being able to like get clothes in my size that were anything other than like tracksuits at Target and watching movies and it was all just kind of women who didn't look like me or men who I wished I could be so I guess for myself like the legacy I would like to leave is just people can look at me and think well if if she can do it then so can I. With all of this in mind what does success mean to you? That's a really good question that I've been talking a lot with my therapist about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I still kind of come from that background I think that's really ingrained in me. These ideas of like meritocracy is that you have to achieve incredibly well to be worth any value. And I think you think things like, okay, they'll do really well at school. And I think these are kind of values that my parents and their community, like people pass on to you because they're so ingrained. Like all of my worth has always been about accomplishments. And now as, you know, as I enter into my 30s, I'm like, that isn't healthy. 
you know, that's a lot of pressure to have on yourself. And so I think it's things like legacy, creating a community, like what are the values that you aspire to? And again, I've been talking a lot about this with my therapist, but things for me like laughter, kindness, being engaged with the world, family, friendship, those are values I have that in a way have been so part of, I think so obvious to other people about like what I do for me, like kind of in a way got so pushed to the side for like Mm. five or six years. So yeah, I think success is, you know, kind of in a way what opportunity has it created for other people. And in a way, Mm. like are you, do I get to spend that time with my family and my friends and, and do I feel like I can breathe without feeling like I am only valued through what I do and I'm really trying to unlearn that. But I think to me, I, I guess success changes because this is so self-healthy, but um, it, it always, it has been changing. And I guess now as I'm just going into like a different period of my life, I'm, I'm trying to, like that idea of what it is, is, is changing. Because I thought, you know, once you... I was like, I want to be a playwright. I became a playwright. Like, I want to be a TV writer. I became a TV writer. I want to get US representation. Like, just little things like that is you you get it. But that kind of, that, that'll that never, like, it, it's, you think that that'll satiate something in you. And it's just, for me, it just doesn't. I don't know what it's like for you fellas. But it just, it does, it, it, you know, like, you're ticking these boxes. And it was like the boxes just kept yeah you know like Russian dolls so for me I think it's just learning how to value that and then I want to be able to be part of the building work of creating a community that created such a great life for me. Hmm. Nakia you are incredible we are so so very grateful that you gave us an hour of your time you have been on our list for a long time so when you came back and said yes I'll come on we were super excited and this chat has honestly been one of my favorite that we've ever done on Chamberson Conversation. So thank you for being so generous and being so wonderful. No, thanks for letting me talk your ear off. It was a bit like all over the place. It's a privilege. I, like, I get to talk to people. I love it. And then just proceeded to rant at you. No. <laughs> but um, hey, congratulations on like all of your success and how great the podcast is. I'm a big fan. So I'll probably listen to this and cringe at my own voice. But <laughs> you couldn't. I can't wait to listen to everybody else. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Nakia Louie. If you're wanting more from Nakia after this chat, we can't recommend her recent Audible original podcast alongside her friend Miranda Tapsell, Debutante, Race, Resistance and Girl Power more. You can also find her on Instagram at Nakia. If you enjoyed this chat, we also recommend you listen to our other In Conversation episodes with STEM journalist Ray Johnston and best-selling author Dolly Alderton. We will pop links to both of those chats in our show notes. As for us, the best way to support the show is click follow on Spotify or to recommend this episode to a friend. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Monday. Oh, 
hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week now. Every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.